Jim and Bill are roommates. Jim is a Christian. Bill is not. Jim and Bill were engaged in a late-night conversation about religion in their dorm room. And although he was initially quite interested in Jim's impressive testimony about how his relationship with Christ had changed his life, Bill became increasingly disturbed as the conversation began to focus on verses such as John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jim continued to explain in a gentle but insistent tone that Scripture makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the only Savior for all peoples. Suddenly, Bill cut him off. Come on, Jim, be reasonable. I'm glad that Christianity works for you, and I do think Jesus said some good things, but how can anyone today believe that there is only one true religion? Perhaps you've had a conversation like this. Nearly everything you're saying about Jesus is acceptable to the other person. Until you make the claim that Jesus is not just one way of salvation. He's not just the best way of salvation. He is the only way of salvation. At that moment, the offense of Christianity becomes clear. The salvation God offers in Christ necessarily excludes all other proposals for salvation. We live in a culture where religious pluralism is rampant. Rather than having any one particular objective truth, our pluralistic culture tells us that no one religious perspective or figure can be normative for all people in all cultures at all times. And in this environment, religion becomes highly pragmatic and psychological. The pluralist doesn't care to evaluate any one religion based on the truthfulness of its claims, but based merely on its usefulness to meet felt needs. Remember the response of Bill. I'm glad Jesus works for you. To assert that Jesus is anything more is imperialistic, says our culture. Our passage is quite relevant for the situation in which we find ourselves. Peter and John get interrogated by the religious elite in Israel, and, and what they say in response leaves no room for neutrality when it comes to Jesus. All peoples of all times and every place must call upon His name if they want God's salvation. That's the appeal of the true Gospel, that's the appeal that Peter will make. And that means preaching the gospel will divide the world. Some will believe, some will oppose. And it will also mean that we need great boldness to preach this gospel in particular when the world does oppose it. We're going to break down this passage in Acts 4 into into three smaller chunks, uh, where we see the gospel dividing humanity, uh, where we see the gospel's exclusive claims, and, and then where we see the necessity of boldness in preaching this gospel. So to begin with, let's look at how preaching the gospel divides humanity into, into two camps, those who oppose it and those who embrace it, who believe it, verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. Let's stop there. We're, we're right in the middle of Peter and John preaching to a crowd of Jews amazed at the healing of a lame man. A lame man of 40 years was healed instantly in the name of Jesus. And, and this, this healing uh, signaled something huge. The healing is proof that God glorified Jesus, Peter says. Jesus wasn't dead, he was alive. And, and the power of his resurrection and the power of his kingdom was now manifesting itself right here in the healing of this man. Well, about four hours later, the religious elite have had enough of this talk. It says they were greatly annoyed. It gives two reasons. One, they were teaching the people. These apostles aren't the accepted leaders in Israel. Who do these guys think they are? Who, who approved them to teach our people? Who gave them the authority? Two, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's a bit vague here. Are, are they preaching the resurrection of Jesus in particular? Yeah, we saw that in chapter 2. Or are they preaching the resurrection of the dead in, in general? The answer is yes. To proclaim, in the case of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead was to proclaim that the expected resurrection at the end of history had already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. This is why Paul will put it later on that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first fruits. ...of those who have fallen asleep. The final resurrection has two episodes. Episode one, Jesus rises from the dead. Episode two, all believers rise with him. This explains why the religious elite are so annoyed. The Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection at all. The other guys accepted the resurrection... ...but only at the end of history. Not in the middle of history... So the disciples were annoying everybody. Not only is the resurrection a fact, but it has already begun. Jesus' proof was, Jesus' resurrection was proof of both. And hey, by the way, don't forget the lame man who's standing here next to us, healed because of it. So they arrest them. Quick fix while they try to figure out what to do next. But not everybody opposes the message. Verse 4, many of those... ...who had heard the word, believed... ...and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So there's a division. The gospel provokes opposition in some... ...and it produces faith in others. Why it does so, we must trust to the sovereignty of God. These religious leaders have every reason to believe. The apostles' answers are very logical. They've only done a good deed. We'll, we'll see in a minute. 
At one point, the leaders realize that the evidence is stacked against them. This lame man is healed. He's standing right there. Nobody can deny it. Who wouldn't believe, we might be quick to ask. But the truth is that the human heart is this stubborn. By nature, it suppresses the truth. And God must change the heart to receive the evidence for what it truly is. God must remove our bias inside. One thing we must remember in our own gospel preaching is that some will oppose it. There are always going to be ways we can get better at our evangelism efforts and more clear in our presentation of the gospel and answering people's objections to the faith. But we must never think that if I could just get X, Y, and Z in place, then conversion is inevitable. It's not. Some will oppose the gospel no matter what evidence they're given. At the end of the day, we must entrust the results to the Lord and pray fervently for their, con- their conversion and sleep well at night. But we must also remember that in our own gospel preaching, some will believe. Some will hear about Jesus and believe. God's Spirit will open their eyes to the truth. In fact, this passage is, is fairly ironic because in a little bit we're going to see that the Pharisees have their, uh, and, and, the, and the religious elite have their own little private conversation. And they sent the apostles out. You've got to ask yourself, how does Luke know about their conversation? He knows about their conversation because some of them got saved. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And many of the number of the priests came to know the Lord. Some are going to believe. We're going to see many more summary statements like this in Acts, where we see the word of God advancing and saving despite the opposition. The point for us to take home is that God's mission to gather his people, it cannot fail. The gospel cannot be stopped. The opposition, uh, the opposition will try to intimidate and frighten and seek to smother and suppress... But nobody can stop the risen Jesus from building his church. So we should take away, preach the word, no matter the response. Preach the word, brothers and sisters. Preach it far and wide. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. In fact, arresting Peter and John becomes just another opportunity for the gospel to advance among these religious elite. It was just like Jesus said before. You know, you're going to be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake. Why? To bear witness. Before them. The arrest of Christians does not mean the opposition is winning, and that day may be drawing closer for us. Pray for faithfulness to bear witness to the opposition. Let's go there next to the message Peter proclaims to the religious elite. We'll begin in verse 5, but by the end of verse 12, we'll see that preaching the gospel means declaring Jesus as the exclusive Savior. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So picture the situation, this, this council of religious elite, also known as the Sanhedrin, They gathered kind of in a a semicircle. You know, if you've ever seen a picture of the Senate floor at the Capitol, 
Uh, it would be much like that. And they, and they sit Peter and John right in the middle. So talk about intimidating. You can see the introverts. You're sweating already, right? And then they, they then inquire, by what power or by what name did you do this? And they know the answer. Peter and John spent four hours talking to the people about it yesterday. It wasn't a secret. They're looking for a way to intimidate them. These are the same leaders who threatened to ostracize anybody who confessed Jesus to be the Christ. They'd kick you out of the synagogue, John 9.22. These are the same leaders who, who put Jesus on trial and convinced Pilate to crucify Jesus. You remember that guy named Caiaphas? He's here. how would you answer? Would you just kind of keep things vague? You know, kind of generalize your answers so as not to offend. After all, you want to go home. Your wife and kids are waiting at home. Couldn't they have just said, God healed the man? You know, the God of Israel. That God, he healed the man. Wouldn't that have been true? It would have been true. It just wouldn't have announced the gospel. It wouldn't have challenged their worldview that had no room for a crucified Messiah. It wouldn't have glorified Jesus. Peter, we see, centers them on Jesus. Look at it in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What an answer. It cuts right through all the baloney and and forces these leaders to deal with Jesus. As C.S. Lewis once put it, Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic. Or he is Lord. And Peter is pressing such a dilemma upon them with with his his words. There's there's no room for neutrality when it comes to Jesus. First of all, he reiterates that Jesus is the one who healed the man. Verse 10. By him this man is standing before you well. In other words, the Jesus you crucified, he's alive. The Jesus you rejected, God raised and, and vindicated. He's still healing people. You tried to stop them, but this is how it goes when somebody walks out of the grave. The same point gets then reinforced in Peter's next assertion. God made made Jesus the cornerstone by his resurrection. What's important is that Peter doesn't just pull this cornerstone metaphor out of, out of thin air. He, he, he's actually quoting from Psalm 118. If you want to go there uh, with me. Psalm 118. <clears throat> These religious leaders would have known Psalm 118. It was read annually at every Passover celebration. It, it, it's a call to Israel to give thanks to the Lord uh, for His steadfast love. And in particular, how that steadfast love is related to 
a special king. So in Psalm 118, God's special king is suffering. A mob of hostile nations are about to consume the king. You see this in verses 9 to 13. And he has nothing left. Life itself is fleeting. But, But one thing never wavers. The king remains faithful to the Lord. He is righteous. And so the Lord ends up vindicating this king in battle. His enemies go up in flames like like stubble burning up in the fire. And and when the king wins the battle, his people also win the battle. And so by the end of Psalm 118, you get this picture of the king making his victory march into God's city and his people are coming with him. and And he leads his people right up to the gates of the righteous or the gate of the Lord. Well, these gates were the entryway into God's presence. And only the righteous could enter God's presence. So, all of us would be in a heap of trouble. The gates aren't going to open if we come up to them. Well, well, this king comes right up to the gates. All his people with him. And he says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And they, they open to the king proving his righteousness And amazingly, the people get to enter with him. And they're all singing shouts of thanksgiving. And so the picture is that of a faithful king who brings his people into God's presence by his own righteousness. A faithful king who brings his people into God's presence by his own righteousness. Well, it's within that context that we get this metaphor of a cornerstone... In verse 22, the king is the stone that the builders rejected, but has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most significant stone. It determines how all the other, all the other stones are going to lay. If you miss this stone, your building is a disaster. Apparently, this king, who brings his people into God's presence by his own righteousness, will also be rejected by men... And then vindicated by God as the most important. Verse 23 says, this is the Lord's doing. His rejection, his vindication, all of it is the Lord's doing in making this particular king of righteousness the cornerstone. Now hold that thought and turn with me now to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Because Jesus is about to pick up what Psalm 118 laid down. He's talking with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. You can see that in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. The same people Peter is talking to. And they're all bothered by Jesus and they want proof of his authority. And so Jesus gives them a little parable in verse 9. There's this man. He planted a vineyard and, it, and let it out to the tenants and uh, went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And, and he sent another servant, but they also beat him. 
and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Ah, I will send my beloved son. My beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And this irritates them. It says next that because uh, they, they perceive that Jesus was saying this parable about them. Long before Peter used Psalm 118, Jesus used it to speak about himself to these same leaders in Israel. You see, he is the beloved son in the parable. After ignoring all the prophets, the people would kill Jesus. And once they did, the Lord would raise up Jesus and then build a true people that listened to Jesus and gained the full inheritance. He would build them up like a new temple and Jesus would be their cornerstone. If you don't build your life on the cornerstone, that same stone will crush you. That's the kind of preaching that Peter heard from Jesus. Now Peter is telling these same religious elite, look, I know that you think you're building up Israel with all your fancy traditions and and keeping in law keeping, but but in the process you actually denied and, and rejected the righteous king who brings people into God's presence. You can't bring yourself into God's presence. The gates of the righteous won't open for you. They open only for one who is truly righteous, King Jesus. You rejected him, but God made Jesus the cornerstone by resurrection. And he's building a new people. Here's one of them leaping for joy in the temple. There's another 5,000 back at home. So you either get on board with the stone, the cornerstone, or he's going to crush you. This is the way it would have fallen on their ears as he's quoting Psalm 118 and it leads leads him to make one further assertion about Jesus in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is salvation according to Psalm 118? It's Being saved has to do with being welcomed into the very presence of God. It's not just about escaping fire. It's about being welcomed into the very presence of God. By a righteousness that's not your own. In our sin, we can't enter God's presence. In our fickleness, we can't stay faithful to the Lord when suffering comes. The gates into paradise only open for one man, one king, one God-man, one victorious man, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
You stand on him, you're on solid ground. But if you don't, then there's no hope for you. Listen to the universality of this claim. It says, no one else. And if that wasn't clear, no other name under heaven given among men. People must call upon the name of Jesus Christ in particular in order to be saved. Jesus is the only righteous one who gives access to the presence of God. And we know that because God raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. Nobody else has been risen, raised. You see, if death had held Jesus in the grave, it would have proven that Jesus is a sinner just like the rest of us. But it didn't. God said the world's verdict on Jesus was wrong. And he, in fact, is the righteous one and the only righteous one. How do we know that? He raised him from the dead and he appeared to the apostles. They saw him for 40 days. What that means is that all attempts at salvation or human flourishing apart from Jesus are totally vain pursuits. Personal enlightenment, Hinduism, New Age, good works to earn God's favor in Islam, Mormonism, and Jehovah's Witnesses, following the Torah and waiting for a Messiah that is other than Jesus, Judaism, Appeasing the so-called gods, like in the tribal religions. Living in harmony with the ways of nature. Taoism. Simply applying rational thinking to our problems. Atheism. The noble eightfold path of a right view, a right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And Buddhism. That is exhausting. The activity of self-realization. Oprah. Just believing that you have what it takes. Osteen, Christ is the best way, but maybe not the only way. All nominal Christianity. All of these are totally futile. None of them ultimately submit to Jesus as the only way for salvation. Salvation is in no other name because only Jesus was with God from the beginning and was God. Only Jesus is both God and becomes man. Only Jesus was born of a virgin. Only Jesus is the righteous one. Only Jesus fulfills all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Only Jesus lived the life Adam could have lived but didn't live and thrust us into a heap of mess wishing we could only live. Only Jesus could satisfy the cup of God's wrath. Only in Jesus' death comes the death of death. Only Jesus rose from the grave. Only Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Only Jesus will come again to put the world right. And every knee will bow to only Jesus. The world must believe in him. The world asks, why just one way? The world ought to be asking, why is there a way at all for sinners? The only way is in Christ. And it is open to all. As a church, we must also build upon him. 
not just a matter of believing in Him. It's a matter of building on Him, building our lives upon Him, building this church upon Him. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of our existence. We can have no competing foundations, no pastor, no dynamic personality or program, no political party, no demographic, no ethnicity, no self-help philosophy. Nothing can replace the cornerstone. We build on Him or we perish. The Christian life isn't about how I can live the way I want to live and still have Jesus too. It's, hey, by the grace of God, I was set on this cornerstone. And He is precious. And God is making me into a holy temple in the Lord where the Spirit dwells and my life can bring Him glory. Jesus is the cornerstone. We must believe in Him alone and build on Him alone. One final point here. Is preaching the gospel requires great boldness in the face of opposition. Preaching the gospel requires great boldness in the face of opposition. Read with me from verse 13. Now when they saw the, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. You kind of see a similarity here between what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. All the soldiers come back and they're like, hey, this guy walked out of the grave. And they're like, whoa, let's go spread lies. So they cover, 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 cover it up. They're doing the same thing. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in the name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Sort of turns the tables on them. Who's really under investigation here? Is it the apostles? Or is it these guys? You must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So in verse 13, the religious elite, they observe the boldness of Peter and John. And a further example of their boldness comes in verses 19 to 20. They're commanded by the highest authorities in Israel not to speak in Jesus' name, but Peter and John promise to obey God rather than men. And this is one thing we must always remember as Christians, is that governing authority is never an absolute authority. Neither is parental authority or husband's authority or any other kind of authority in this world. 
absolute authority belongs to Jesus alone. If the governing authorities demand we live in ways contrary to the authority of Christ, we must disobey them in order to follow Jesus. And this requires boldness. Now keep in mind that they're speaking to some of the very people who crucified their master just two months ago. They know that that this answer may very well cost them their lives too. What makes them so bold? Isn't this Peter? Peter, the one who is hiding with the soldiers during Jesus' arrest and trial? The one who got scared by a little servant girl asking him if he was Jesus' disciple? The one who denied Jesus two months ago? I mean, what changed Peter? What's gotten into him? What, what gives him such courage to preach Jesus as the exclusive Savior of the world and then disobey governing authorities to keep doing it? What's in Peter now that, that might also give us courage to preach this Jesus we've been talking about? Well, to begin, they have the hope of the resurrection. We saw that in verse 2. It said that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection gave them confidence in their own resurrection. Remember, he's part one. Believer's resurrection, part two. Do you so believe that God raised Jesus from the dead that, that death can ultimately have no say over you? No hold on you. I mean, the worst people can do to you is kill you for the gospel. And then immediately you're with Christ until he raises your body from the grave. I mean, when that's in you, truly, you will be bold. You will be bold. You will say with with Paul, you to live as Christ, to die as gain. We also see that they have the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit's power. Notice again in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, I know how this goes. You read these amazing testimonies of the martyrs and the apostles and stuff throughout church history. and, 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 and and, and, And you immediately start saying, oh man, I don't know if I could ever do that. And you start worrying about and borrowing trouble from tomorrow. I don't know if I'll fail Jesus when that comes for me. I can barely say anything to the guy next to me at Starbucks or or at work. I can't imagine doing this. You see, there's no need for us to borrow trouble from tomorrow and worry that we might fail Christ when the occasion comes. Jesus told his disciples that when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit empowers His people to speak as they ought to speak in these moments. So ask the Spirit to help you and trust that He will be there for you and with you and in you and empowering you. You may not have... The grace to speak in that way. Because you're not in that situation. When you are, the grace will be there. 
Don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. God's Spirit has got this. It's also noted that these men were with Jesus. Verse 13. These men were not bold because they were trained in the schools of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were bold because they were with Jesus. They knew Jesus. Jesus knew them. They walked with Jesus and witnessed His glory. They spent time with Jesus. You see, boldness to preach Christ grows out of knowing Christ. Not just knowing about Christ, but actually knowing Christ. You don't need a seminary degree to be bold. You don't have to be eloquent to be a bold witness for Jesus. He can use anybody. But you must know him. You must know Jesus. You must be with him. These men also knew the truth. In verse 20 we see, We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They saw Jesus rise. They heard him teach. Not only that, there's a man who's lame 40 years, now leaping. Because I said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. I mean, even the religious leaders couldn't deny that truth. They could, they could ignore it. They could suppress it. They could tell the apostles, hey, you shut up about this. But they couldn't withstand the truth. You see, the more we're acquainted with the truth, and the more we're convinced of the truth, the bolder we become in our witness. There's good reason to study the Bible. And when people have objections to the faith, to study and reach in and go there to know the truth. The more you're convinced of the truth, the bolder we become in our witness. I bet any of you, this guy, let's just picture, this guy comes up to you in a swimsuit and chains around his feet, and you're like, hey, what's going on with you? And he's going, I'm going to go down to the swimming pool, and I'm going to walk on the bottom of the swimming pool, and I'm going to breathe. You're like, no, you're not. Unless you got some scuba gear back there, you ain't, you ain't breathing underwater. Oh, yes, I am. I can, I can breathe underwater. No, you can't. What makes you so bold? Like, you know the truth. Lungs don't work underwater. You've gagged in your bathtub and other stuff. You, you know that, right? You see, when we, when we have, we know truth, like tangible truth, we're bold to speak. It's the same with the Christian faith. They knew the truth. And they've given that truth to us. Lastly, we see that they feared God more than people. They feared God more than people. In verse 19, they turn the tables a bit. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Their biggest concern isn't the approval of others. They're not concerned with what the religious elite might think of them. They're concerned only with doing what's right in the sight of God. Fear of man may be one of the biggest hindrances to preaching the gospel. The only solution to the fear of man is the fear of God, who rules all things. That's not to say we don't face the truth about difficult and even very intimidating circumstances that that we may face. Uh, The apostles weren't living in denial of their own fears. In fact, next week, the whole section is on praying that God would give them boldness because they're afraid. Rather, the fears they, they did face 
were given their proper perspective before a grand vision of God's sovereignty and God's authority and God's rule and God's judgment. All of God is the solution to man fear. Perhaps you've been, in, you've been timid to share the gospel with others. Perhaps now seeing some of these things in this passage, you're, you're already wondering you know, what that next conversation is going to look like when, when you finally tell that friend, that cousin, that family member, that co-worker that Jesus is the exclusive Savior of the world and, and they must call on His name to, in order to be saved. Learn from this passage. Be emboldened to, to, to speak by what we see here. That Christ's resurrection is the assurance of our resurrection. That the Holy Spirit will empower us to speak on behalf of Christ. We can spend time with Jesus in the Word and, and prayer and know Him. And then be able to speak more about Him. We can equip ourselves with the truth in Scripture. And we can rekindle our awe of God. And He will use these things to make us bold witnesses in proclaiming Christ for salvation. Why don't we pray?